G'day listeners, I'm your host Edgar Greste, and you're listening to the Business of Biodiversity podcast. You know, farmers are in a tricky position. In New South Wales, there are over 1,000 species and ecological communities that are under threat. Farmers own over half of the Australian landscape, so how they manage it is crucial to the survival of many threatened species. In this episode, we'll hear from experts, conservationists and farmers, all sharing their experiences and knowledge around threatened species conservation. We'll explore how plants and animals deliver significant ecosystem services on farm and why biodiversity is simply good for business. Traditionally, we think of biodiversity as something to preserve. But if we think of it in business terms as an asset, Biodiversity is something to invest in, and the money that funds it often comes from philanthropy, fundraising, and government grants. But increasingly, conservationists are looking to the business world for finance. One organisation doing this is Odonata, a not-for-profit that brings together business investment and philanthropy to fund projects in biodiversity conservation. Here's founder and chairman Nigel Sharp. I guess I'm a conservationist at heart, but I think a realist as well in how we can fund conservation going forward. So the concept of the business of biodiversity is is really trying to look at how conservation, how looking after the planet can work on a large scale. To understand how Nigel found himself at the intersection of business and biodiversity, you have to go back to his childhood. Back in my childhood, the major issues were there's still a lot of land clearing going on, but there was it was overclearing, so soil erosion and salinity were emerging problems. So replanting gullies and creek banks and things like that became a, um, a task my father was very passionate about. He used to have us planting trees, and beyond that he went and started working with the Soil Conservation Authority. So I had a pretty broad foundation in um, looking at the landscape from a conservation and, and restoration perspective. That probably set the scene for me. But growing up on a small farm with three other brothers, Nigel's dad encouraged them all to go to uni and study business, which introduced Nigel to a whole other world. But it was actually a little, furry, nearly extinct mammal that gave Nigel his purpose. You know, Australia's got just amazing mammals that are disappearing, and um, where I grew up, the eastern barred bandicoot was thought to be extinct at that point, and a small number, a very small number of eastern barred bandicoots some years later were found in the Hamilton Tip, living in old car bodies. It became, a, I guess, a passion to say, well, what other species can get down to numbers of, you know, in low double digits, and can you work them back from there, and how important are they to the landscape? And they're, they're beautiful animals, and it'd be a pity to lose them. I guess as I've learnt more and seen, seen what impacts that does have back into the ecosystem and the landscape, and seen the results and then got engaged with community on it and the passion around, I guess, saving species but also giving hope to the future that recovery work can be successful because there was quite a, a lot of science at the time sort of saying, well, we really have to forget these species and manage what's easier to save going forward. There came a point in my life where I decided to um, try and combine business and conservation and see if we can get landscape restoration working. Our fauna and flora is so unique. We're this island that has been isolated since Gondwana broke up 100 million years ago or so. And 
our fauna has evolved in isolation to become so completely unique. So, you know, when people talk about things that are Australian, there's nothing more Australian than our biodiversity. But our generation is just letting that slide towards extinction. That's Associate Professor Matt Hayward from the University of Newcastle. So when I was a little kid, my mum would take us to the library and I'd borrow books on animals that were largely, you know, kind of encyclopedias, big picture books. And mum just thought I was looking at the pictures. She didn't think I was reading about things. But then, you know, all of a sudden I started sprouting facts about biodiversity and, you know, animals and things like that. And so she thought, well, maybe he's quite keen on this. And I suppose that led to my parents, you know, doing things to facilitate my interests. So I think their support has really enabled me to chase my dreams and been lucky enough to be able to pursue that for my career. Matt has spent his career studying and researching conservation of threatened species, both here in Australia and overseas. So what are the actual threats our native Australian species are facing? On a global scale, habitat loss is the biggest threat. So, you know, humans go out there and chop down uh, trees and change vegetation for our residential areas for agriculture, and that causes lots of species to become threatened. But in Australia, the major threat is introduced species. So foxes and cats have decimated um, our mammal fauna and some of our reptiles and birds, but also chytridomycosis, which is the fungal disease that affects frogs and affects the way they respire through their skin. And it's had a huge effect on frogs around the world, but also in Australia. So it's another invasive species that's really affected us. So Australia stands out as being unique in that introduced species are the primary threatening process. Once we adequately address the threats to threatened species, and once we invest sufficiently in reversing those threats, we can have fantastic outcomes. Like there are large fenced enclosures. There's you know, 10,000 hectares at New Haven that the Australian Wildlife Conservancy are running. Um, other 8,000 hectares at uh, Scotia in far western New South Wales. These are areas where we completely eradicate foxes, cats, goats and rabbits, all these invasive species that are primary drivers of the decline of Australian fauna. And all of a sudden, the biodiversity just leaps back. A whole range of species, not just the ones that have been reintroduced there, but other species that have just been eking out a living are able to increase in number. And you just walk through those environments at night time and with a spotlight and you see the eye shine all over the place and the ground is potholed with diggings of all these little species and it's just a different world and and it has so many flow-on effects to the environment out at scotia a pair of bilbies i watched over a weekend and they dug up about two hectares of land and so they dig you know little 20 centimeter deep burrows or not little diggings to get um, uh, mycorrhizal fungi from the roots of plants and they eat those and other invertebrates as well and they just turned over this massive amount of soil. But that change in the quality of the, the ground means that rainfall, if it, fall, if it falls out in that arid area, just soaks straight into the ground. And any wind that comes along doesn't pick the soil up and blow it so we don't have these big dust storms that hit Sydney and, and go all the way across to New Zealand every now and again. Because the, the turbulence created by those little potholes slows down the flow of air around the surface of the soil so that the soil is not picked up. And that means they're little germination hotspots. So all of a sudden we get lots of plants growing in the environment. So when we act accordingly and really invest in conservation efforts, we can have fantastic successes. Because of their diminishing numbers, many threatened mammal populations like bilbies, numbats and bandicoots are protected behind fences in wildlife sanctuaries. And whilst fencing is critical to keeping out introduced predators, 
it doesn't have to exclude things like agricultural production. Here's Rich Gilmore from The Nature Conservancy to explain. Two big myths that I try to bust on a regular basis when I'm talking to farmers and others. Uh, The first is that nature and agriculture are or have to be in competition. So I think there's a prevailing assumption that in order for agriculture to thrive, nature has to suffer uh, and vice versa. For nature to thrive, then agricultural production has to suffer. I don't think either of those things are true. I think done well, uh, agriculture uh, and nature can thrive together and be mutually reinforcing. Uh, And I think uh, another myth related to that is that in some way, you know, conservation or the conservation movement environmentalists um, are against farming or against agricultural practices. I just don't think that's true. At least the Nature Conservancy were very pragmatic uh, about conservation and about not only the need uh, to work with farmers and others uh, to deliver our, our mission from a just from a mission perspective, a, a pragmatic perspective in Australia, around 50% of the landscape is owned, managed or controlled by farmers. And so we you know, have to work constructively uh, with farmers just to get our uh, mission done. But also that's the right thing to do. We don't believe that our views are any more right than anybody else's. And so we seek to work constructively with all sectors of the economy and society to design these big solutions that benefit people and nature. When Rich talks about working with farmers and landowners, he speaks from the heart because he comes from a big farming family in Queensland on the Darling Downs, and he knows just how tough it is out on the land. Farming is a really tough racket. You know, you can go for you know, years, multiple seasons without income, providing a really critical service to society and the economy. What could be more critical than providing the fresh food that everybody eats? Um, but that was, a, that was a tough racket, and I thought, you know, I'd, I'd go for the easy life and move to the big city and become a stockbroker. When I was working in the city, having left the farm, but still obviously very connected uh, to farming through my family, I went on a volunteer expedition to a research project in Kenya, studying mangroves of all things. And what really struck me was not so much the subject matter, but it was this idea that really capable people, really articulate people, smart people, would spend their days in the mud solving other people's problems. And I thought that was just a really inspiring way to spend one's time. And so I came back, threw in my job at a multinational corporation and you know, got a job in, in conservation. And I've been doing that for close to 15 years now, I guess, uh, but have never lost sight of the importance of healthy farming to the economy and society. To understand the value of biodiversity and threatened species in a business sense, we need to focus on their functional role in the environment. And for Nigel Sharp, who we heard from earlier, working on a conservation reserve called Mount Rothwell in Victoria opened his eyes to the power of native threatened species on farm business and landscape resilience. The biggest harm moment, I think, for me was when we started the Mount Rothwell project, we got a um, very, very heavy rainfall event and all the water ran off, caused a lot of erosion and uh, flattened our feral proof fence in about four different locations, which was quite devastating at the time. What we found over the time, once the bandicoots and betongs came back in and started uh, working the soil, 
and then the native vegetation did better. The, a whole lot of aeration comes back into the soil and the soil gets a lot more health. We've had rainfall events worse than that in more recent years and the water's gone straight into the soil and formed up in the, in the groundwater and, and the springs have started flowing again and, and the fences have remained standing. So we really see that as a, a direct benefit of the diggings and scratchings and pokings of the southern brown bandicoot, the eastern betong and the eastern barred bandicoot combined. So we sort of call them our ploughs and cedars really. And there are many other benefits to landscape resilience that these cute little creatures provide. Here's Annette Rapalski, Biodiversity Director with Odonata. Eastern barred bandicoots sort of look like a, a little guinea pig, I suppose. So they're mainly diggers. They can turn over about three tonnes of soil per year per animal. And I suppose the benefit of this is it aerates the soil. It introduces important soil microbes. They've shown evidence that they'll actually reduce intensity of wildfires through an area. So they're, they're quite important little creatures in our landscape and underrated and they provide a free service. So it's, it's a little bit sad to lose them if we ever were to. As the biodiversity director, Odenata comes across an opportunity to um, establish a project at a, at a property and it's, it's sort of up to me to either add the conservation value to it or enhance whatever value it already has. When we're designing a model, they're all different. So depending on what site we're working on, what conservation values it has and the way it's modelled around its agricultural business plan, we then decide how how we add the conservation element to it. So conservation sometimes is a primary, but most of the time it is a secondary. And, and we find the, the agricultural business model that is being managed on the site usually supports the conservation value and they work hand in hand. One of our properties, Tiverton, probably a great example of that where it was sort of historically managed as a lazy farmer's property so there were just some rogue sheep floating around which sort of benefited the landscape so it turned out to be quite a nice grassland site and so when we took over we ended up working with partners from Trust for Nature and we applied this model called strategic grazing for biomass so we actually use sheep to enhance the vegetation in turn we, we also put up a feral proof fence which will support numerous different threatened species including um, the eastern barred bandicoot so in turn basically the the way the model will function is you have a business model of, of running sheep which are actually stocked at a lower density they're strategically grazing the sites that they're enhancing your your vegetation across the landscape but also their their wool is a is a finer quality wool so they're winning awards in in wool quality and on top of that you're actually saving endangered species such as eastern eastern barred bandicoot so it's just this multifaceted model that that just benefits all spaces in a way that people haven't really applied it yet from our point of view it's critical to add value to the conservation and threatened species. And once there's a value on that, I feel like there would be appreciation for it if you can integrate the two. You know, if, if a farmer was to make some sort of gain from, from having threatened species, they'll, they'll definitely be more, more open to supporting it. So that's probably what we're trying to do is add value to our conservation projects and our, our threatened species. And then in turn, we hope that people will be more interested in applying that model. And the good news is that many farms across the country are adopting this multifaceted model. One example is Greengate Organic Farm that's prioritising threatened species in partnership with their customers. Here's farm manager and educator Rob Fenton. 
all over the world, farmers um, struggle to get paid for the ecosystem services they provide. And that lack of payment for that is one of the reasons why we are where we are in a lot of ways. So um, we set up the farm very clearly with that in mind. And that number one is to look after the environment of the farm. So the, the biodiversity of the farm is, is key to all our management decisions. We set our own price for the stuff we sell out of the shop. And part of the reason we can do that is our customers are happy to pay what we ask for because of the way we look after the other things on the farm other than just the production side. Compared to most farmers, we actually get paid for the ecosystem services we provide because we, we can set our own price. Greengate Organic Farm is a mixed small-scale farming operation based on the outskirts of Albury-Wodonga. They produce eggs, honey, pastured lamb and pork, herbs, mushrooms and even some flour. And diversity is key to the farm's success not only in what they sell, but also how they farm. Our little farm here is only 200 hectares. We produce food for people on about 100 hectares of that, and the other half, the major focus is on the local ecosystems, wildlife and plants. But because of the way the farm's designed, that 100 hectares that's focused on the environment, that has huge positive outcomes for the neighbouring paddocks that are producing food for our customers. You know, pest control, microclimates, all sorts of stuff like that is happening because of the mosaic of the landscape between a paddock of oats and a, a nearby um, creek line with eucalypts and kangaroos. And for Rob, not only does farming with the environment benefit his food production, it's also created a safe habitat for a tiny threatened species. We have a tiny little froglet called Sloan's froglet, uh, Crinia sloanii, endangered. Used to be all up and down the western slopes of the divide from Queensland down to Victoria, but now it's only found in in a handful of spots and here is one of those. It's very, very common on our farm and uh, breeds and calls in most years. It didn't last year given the, the terrible drought, there was no opportunity for it, but breeds and calls in most of our swales and wetlands we set up as part of our changing our water hydrology on the farm. And we, we have a Sloan's Froglet management plan and we, we manage our grazing and the, the way we use our pigs and our chickens on the landscape and our sheep to make sure that we're managing for those guys and our customers are happy to pay a little bit more for a dozen eggs because of that. Why was that important for you and, and what sort of instigated that plan? It became significant for our little catchment here because it was only found in a few places and Thaguna, the area where we are, is one of those places. We felt that we had a significant proportion of the entire universe's population of Sloan's Froglet on our farm and we really felt strongly the, um, you know, the responsibility of that but also felt that our customers felt we had a responsibility as well. If you stick your thumb up in the air and look at from the, the knuckle in your thumb up to the end of it, that air, that's about the size of it. It's only a tiny little frog. The males start calling about now, but really they breed in July and August around here when it's really, really cold. Whereas lots of frogs have huge egg masses, these little frogs lay an individual egg stuck on a flooded piece, blade of grass. Hence the grazing in the grassland and the wet winter with flooded little ephemeral wetlands in the paddocks where there's grass that's been flooded, that's Sloan's Froglet habitat. That's their sweet spot. That's their sweet spot. And, and you know, it's, it's almost counterintuitive you're thinking about that where you think, oh, geez, I want to improve the environment. Let's um, plant some trees and make permanent water bodies and all that sort of stuff. Well, that's not necessarily what's actually needed. And so they're spreading out through the landscape now. We've had some beautiful rain. So we've got swales and wetlands and leaky dams all over our farm. And so they're starting to spread out through them now from our sort of larger permanent water refuge areas. 
And then in July and August, if it keeps raining, they'll be breeding again this year. Then through the summer, they'll tend to concentrate back in those areas where it's a bit more favourable for them and then spread out hopefully again next year. And you mentioned about it being kind of counterintuitive. What have you kind of learnt out of that experience when someone's thinking about, I want to improve diversity and yep. think about uh, threatened species that have been observed on my property? Yeah, you've got to look at the world from their perspective, don't you? Yeah, you've got to put your Sloan's froglet hat on for a while and think about how they see the farm. <laughs> and we didn't design our farm with Sloan's froglet in mind. Uh, we didn't know it existed, but uh, it just so happened that you know, we were lucky, but now, we're, you know, we've got our management plan to make the most of that. But really, when we're thinking about other species now, that's what we do. We, we try and think from the perspective of um, the animal that we're thinking about. Uh, I had a wonderful um, lecturer when I studied ecology at university. He always told me that one of the great tools an ecologist has is to be able to become a child again. And so that's what we've done, and it seems to be working okay. How does it feel to see this improvement in these species on your property because of the management practices you've put in place? It makes my heart glow. We get a, a great feeling from watching our customers come and buy our lamb chops and walk away satisfied and come back next time, but we also get a fantastic feeling hearing the Sloan's froglets calling of an evening out in the wetlands as well, it's, um, and so do our customers. It adds another layer of satisfaction to our farming. From small-scale farming to large landscape projects, there are many great examples of how agriculture and biodiversity, managed well, can benefit each other. One particular project is the Great Cumbung, a 35,000 hectare landscape of reed swamps and river red gums, located in southwestern New South Wales. Here's Rich Gilmore from the Nature Conservancy to explain more. The Great Cumbung is the point at which the Lachlan and Murrumbidgee rivers connect. And so if you get enough water, in particular coming down the Murrumbidgee and pushing up into the Lachlan, you get really important exchanges of things like genetic diversity between fish populations in the Lachlan and the Murrumbidgee. You get big watering events in the river red gums and reed swamps. Uh, and you get this connection of this incredible landscape across about 200,000 hectares in the Riverina. So the Great Kumbang, uh, the 35,000 hectares of those two properties, is immediately adjacent to really important environmental assets. The Yanga National Park, which has one of the largest, most intact red gum forests in New South Wales, and Gaini, which is formerly known as, as Nimikaira, which has some of the largest lignum wetland swamps in Australia. And so together they form this contiguous 200,000 hectare connected conservation, cultural and indigenous uh, and agricultural landscape. The Great Cumbung is now the largest intact breed swamp of its kind left in Australia, and it's home to a large endangered ecological community, including 19 species of fish, 10 species of crustaceans, 8 species of mollusks, and over 200 plant species and 150 bird species. But it's not just an ecological conservation hotspot. Here's Rich Gilmore again. What was really important for the Nature Conservancy as well, and its partner, um, Tiverton Rothwell Impact Agriculture, was to demonstrate that these ecological values can be sustained and thrive alongside sustainable agricultural production. And so just recently, with all of the, the good rain that we've had in, in Western New South Wales, we've been able to reintroduce sustainable grazing or conservation grazing to the property for the first time in several years. It just hasn't been 
the water, there hasn't been the feed there to reintroduce livestock in a sustainable way. But recently we've been able to do that, which we think is fantastic, being able to demonstrate that these two uses, you know, a sustainable economic use and a conservation use can coexist. And what's interesting about these two priorities is that they're not simply coexisting. They're mutually beneficial. And it's the way the land is managed that has a big role to play. So what does conservation grazing actually look like? And how does it benefit this particular ecosystem? So the really important role of of grazing in that system is to reduce weed loads uh, in particular. So if you think of a wetland right at the end of a river system, along which there is grazing along almost its entire length, it can almost act like a sink concentrating the, you know, the seeds of, of weeds flowing down the Lachlan and then accumulating in the Cumber. And having grazing there, given that we don't have native grazers really in the area anymore as we would have had in pre-European times, now those cattle are acting like a really important weed management tool to reduce that load and keep the environment healthy. A big part of their success comes from collaboration with the traditional owners, the Narinari people in a process called Development by Design. Development by Design is a process that allows farmers and other landholders to identify across the landscape which are the parts of their their properties that are most important for which uses. So you can spatially allocate across the landscape areas for sustainable grazing uh, and for the reintroduction uh, of threatened species and for carbon farming or for wetland uh, restoration. And so that master planning approach uh, is underway at the moment at Gaini and the Great Kumban, and it includes a focus on how we can reintroduce those threatened species that provide not only an environmental benefit and a benefit to nature in its own right, but also a benefit to the productivity of the land. So stay tuned on that one as we continue to work through that planning process. For Rich and the Nature Conservancy, Indigenous knowledge has been key to understanding the landscape and the importance of threatened species on farms. Because, given their diminishing numbers, many of us don't know the valuable role they once played. Here's Associate Professor Matt Hayward to explain. We're living in a world where the density of these native species are so much lower than what they used to be. So we kind of look around now, and it's called the shifting baseline uh, theory or syndrome, where we look around now and assume that's the way it's always been. Historically, the evidence shows that the densities of biodiversity were much, much higher than what they are now, and fish catches were, were much bigger than what we, we get now. So I reckon it's really important to talk to old people, talk to our elders, because so many of them have got you know recognitions and, and re- memories of what life was like back in the day. And so quite recently, we've had one of the old guys from the Hunter Bird Observers Club down here in Newcastle talking about what it was like just in his backyard. And, you know, he'd go out there and see all these amazing birds. And he's lived in the same place for 60 years or so. And over time, you know, he talked about how then this house was built and this development occurred. And, you know, I no longer saw this species and this species. And so it was a 60-year bit of evidence to show, or anecdote, to show how and why species decline. And he was focusing on the birds, but the same kind of stories can occur when you talk to old people about the mammals that used to occur in a region or the the amount of vegetation cover that occurs in a region. So I think it's really important to get those historical anecdotes broadly shared amongst the people living in an area. And it's the new generation of farmers who are seeking to understand the history of the landscape to make better decisions moving forward. Here's Rich Gilmore from the Nature Conservancy again. It might seem like a bit of a cliche, but I think 
it often happens when there is a generational transition happening on a farm. So my uh, parents still farm in Western New South Wales. I grew up on a on a thousand acre grain farm on the Darling Downs in, in Queensland. My father was one of nine and eight of those nine in his generation were all farmers in, in the same district. Your mum and dad and their generation are still fairly conventional in their approach to farming and I'd say there probably is some I don't know residual sort of maybe suspicion of environmentalists and their and our motives but that's not true of my generation so I have 30 first cousins and many of those cousins are still farmers and they very much embrace you know environmentalism or biodiverse farming and their kids will as well and so I think there's been a very significant generational shift and it's often when the farm is being you know, passed down to the next generation that these large-scale transformations happen. It can be challenging and there's a lot of, you know, complex information around biodiversity. And so I understand why people like my parents, for example, are are often still reluctant to make big uh, shifts. The key message, I think, though, is that these sort of changes in, you know, farm practices and reintroducing threatened species and reintroducing native vegetation on farms aren't something to be feared. They're actually good for business. It may be that in an average year, uh, a biodiverse farm and a conventional farm deliver similar yields. But it's when you have those really bad years, consecutive years of drought, um, that the soil health, you know, the biodiversity, the reduced erosion really help uh, to shallow that trough in how bad a bad year is and to get through a drought or to get through um, some other event and out to the other side. Every farmer wants to do the right thing for their kids and for their grandkids and to hand over their farm in a better condition than the way it was handed over to them. And investments in biodiversity on farms are just another way to do that in a sustainable way so that future generations can enjoy the productivity of that land. So there's a lot of pressure riding on farmers to do the right thing. And for some, it can take a real leap of faith when it involves making change. So what role can the public and governments play? There's a really important and emerging role here for government to help farmers invest in that upfront capital cost to transform their farm, to you know, improve water flows, to reintroduce biodiversity, to put in a shelter belt, to you know, fence off you know, high biodiverse areas, for example. Uh, and for the government to play that sort of catalytic role that helps to get over that initial investment that's required to help that farm be sustainable in the long term. Whilst farmers play a major role in the infrastructure of our biodiversity, we all collectively stand to gain from investing in it. So moving forward, what can we do differently? Here's Rob Fenton from Greengate Organic Farm. I think we would have engaged our customers earlier in the conversation about how we design the farm and what we grow. We would be further down the track now if I had have gone out to the community or got some of our farmers market customers to sit around the table with me and say, how do you think we should design our farm? Once we started to really talk to our customers, um, that changed the way we farmed and the way we developed the farm dramatically straight away. Just different minds, different people, fresh looks, people that don't have all the baggage of being a farmer all their lives and all that sort of stuff as well, you know. And for Rob, Getting that different perspective is not just about connecting with your customers, but it's also about listening to the land. 
look at what's happening outside the edges of your farm and think about how you might make connections to that. No farm's an island. That could be a really, really powerful thing to do is look over the boundary fence and think, well, you know, there's a creek line there or there's an old road there or there's a patch of bush there. Why don't I make connecting to that a starting point? This podcast has been produced by the Grow Love Project with support from the New South Wales Government's Saving Our Species program. To hear more episodes, make sure to subscribe. And for more info about the Saving Our Species program, visit savingourspecies.online slash podcast. Thanks for listening.